You're listening to Ithaca Now, WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Himadri Said, and thanks for joining us. On tonight's show, I talk to the creator of the Ithaca-based comic Ithaca, spelled with a Q instead of a C. WICB News correspondent Caroline Grass talks about Bitcoin mining in New York State. WICB News correspondents Michael Memis and Christian Maitri bring you the second episode of the history of student media in Ithaca. And former news director Jay Bradley covers the recent electric vehicles for Earth Day event. But first, we have Beck Legato and Emma Kirsting with Community Beat and George Christopher with this week's Politics Beat. Two Cornell University alumni, Ben Plotke and Yen Wu, have recently opened Lev Kitchen, a restaurant featuring Middle Eastern-inspired cuisine. Food is served in a quick sit-down and -and grab-and-go style. Plotke and Wu got their Master's of Management and Hospitality degrees from Cornell's Hotel Administration program back in 2019. Plotke and Wu have also partnered with local organizations such as Open Doors English and Ithaca Welcomes Refugees to employ refugees living in Ithaca in their restaurant. The Tompkins County Legislature in last Tuesday's meeting decided on the official adoption of Juneteenth as a paid holiday for county employees. Juneteenth is a holiday that serves as a commemoration of the hardships that African Americans suffered in the fight for freedom from enslavery to equality in society and is a celebration of black culture and success in America, pushing for continued social progress in the country. It was a measure that was considered overdue by certain legislature chairs, in particular Shauna Black from District 11, saying, quote, we're likely one of the last employers to allow Juneteenth as a holiday. I'm glad to see us take this step forward. The resolution was passed unanimously. Robert J. Felice of Ithaca was sentenced to 7 to 21 years in prison for aggravated vehicular homicide that occurred July 21st of 2021. De Felice had pleaded guilty to the charge in January. A 14-year-old girl was walking along the shoulder of Route 96 after leaving Indian Creek Farm with three others when De Felice hit two girls of the group while driving under the influence of alcohol and cocaine. At the time of the incident, De Felice had a blood alcohol concentration of 0.269, which is more than three times the legal limit of 0.08. The city of Ithaca is discussing a plan to formalize relations with the jungle, also known as the de facto homeless encampment on the city land in Southwest Park. The area is known as Tides, or the Ithaca-designed encampment site. The plan was presented this past Wednesday at the Planning and Economic Development meeting that would entail initiating a partnership between the city of Ithaca and partner organizations to build kitchen, shower, and bathroom facilities in the jungle, as well as 25 individual cabins and structures that could fit up to 50 people at once. There would also be 24-7 management on site to allow for extra security. At this point, there was no mention of a sobriety need, which sets tides apart from most other supportive housing currently in Ithaca. The 14th annual Spring Rights Literary Festival starts on May 5th. Over 40 events will take place, including 100 local writers. Some events will take place over Zoom, while others will be held in person. The festival will start on May 5th and run through May 21st, with writing workshops continuing through early June. To find the full schedule of events, writer bios, and registration links for Zoom events, visit springrights.org. The Village of Groton Police Department responded to a reported domestic dispute with firearms at about 6.50 p.m. this past Thursday on Barrow Street. The suspect fled on foot while the officers arrived at the scene, and they were told that the suspect had a handgun and pointed it at two of the individuals inside of the household. 
Officers located the suspect near the residence and identified him as Robert S. Bailey of Groton. He was taken into custody with help from the Tompkins County Sheriff's Department and the New York State Police and charged with multiple counts. He was processed and taken to the sheriff's office where he is awaiting arraignment. For Emma Kirsting, I'm Beck Legato. This is your weekly politics beat. I'm George Christopher. On Monday, State Assemblymember Anna Kellis and State Senator Rachel May endorsed Leah Webb in the Democratic primary for New York's 53rd Senate District. According to the Ithaca Voice, May and Kellis gathered with Webb and her supporters at Press Bay Alley in Ithaca. The new 53rd District includes both the cities of Ithaca and Binghamton, making it a deeply Democratic seat. Leslie Danks Burke, a longtime activist and political candidate, is also in the race for the seat. The FEC has released its first financial report of 2022 detailing financial disclosures of local congressional candidates. According to the Ithaca Voice, Josh Riley leads the field, having raked in over $777,000 for his campaign for New York's 22nd congressional district. Behind Riley is Francis Canole and Vanessa Fagens Turner, two other Democratic hopefuls. Republican Mike Siegler took in over $192,000, leading his only other Republican challenger, Brandon Williams, with over $116,000. Former Governor Andrew Cuomo has resurfaced once again, this time in an op-ed in the New York Daily News. According to Syracuse.com, Cuomo attacked Governor Hochul over the administration's decision to allocate $600 million towards a new stadium for the Buffalo Bills. Cuomo also attacked Hochul's response to crime in the state, and levied allegations of corruption. Cuomo resigned in August after an investigation by the Attorney General's office found he'd sexually harassed 11 women. Cuomo was also criticized for undercounting the number of nursing home deaths and was forced to pay back $5 million in profits from a book he wrote using state resources. On Thursday, the New York State Appeals Court upheld a lower court decision that the state's congressional maps were an unconstitutional gerrymander. According to 538, Democrats will appeal the decision to New York State a Court of Appeals, New York's highest court. The court is made up of entirely Democratic appointees. The map would create 20 Democratic-leaning seats and 4 Republican-leaning seats. Previously, the state had 17 Democratic-leaning seats and 7 Republican-leaning seats. Reporting for Ithaca Now, I'm George Christopher. Local comic book writer Michael Watson's creation, Ithaca, with a Q, is a combination of the writer's love for Ithaca and his creative interest in various genres. I got the opportunity to talk to Watson and his wife Julianne this week to learn more about their work. This weekend, students, faculty, and staff at Ithaca College organized Ithaca's annual comic book convention, Ithacon, which began in 1976 and has been held every year since then, with the exception of 2020 due to COVID. On one of the tables in the fandom spread in Emerson Suites were Michael and Julianne Watson. Julianne Watson, Michael's wife. Um, I'm kind of helping with outreach for this leg of the uh, Ithaca comic journey. I'm just kind of here as general moral support and I'm and, a producer. And the creator so. of the character Hazel. Oh yeah, Hazel uh, over here. There you go. <laughs> I'm uh, Michael, uh, the author of Ithaca Comic, um, and I guess co-creator of all the characters. <laughs> Michael's comic Ithaca, spelled as I-T-H-A-Q-A, 
is a comedy-turned-Lovecraftian horror story with a bit of a detective angle as well. In Michael's own words, he likes layering a lot of different ideas together, and that's what makes his work stand out. So it's, it's set in the 1920s, um, right at the beginning of Prohibition and right after women's suffrage, so it's taking place at a time of some vast kind of societal changes, and it follows kind of a group of kind of misfits living in Ithaca at the time, uh, who are unhappy with their jobs, unhappy with society, different, just kind of, their lives are kind of nagging at them in certain ways. And um, they all kind of find their way to this ad in the paper to investigate uh, the Saxon estate, which is kind of uh, over by uh, Lake Cayuga. Um, it's a made up place, but <clears throat> that's geographically where it is if, uh, if uh, you know, the Saxon estate were real. And what starts off as kind of like a, a quick, you know, job or distraction from their boredom at their work or what have you kind of very quickly starts to reveal a, a cult conspiracy in the city of Ithaca that gradually kind of expands to the point where it even threatens just the, the reality of <laughs> the people around them. Uh, yeah, so kind of like True Detective um, season one if if there was actually a supernatural premise behind it because uh, there are definitely real spooky monsters in the Ithaca universe and there's timey-wimey madness as we call it. <laughs> The idea that slowly evolved into what is now Ithaca seeded when Michael was still a student at the Roy H. Park School of Communications at Ithaca College. It started, it, it has shifted in its form so many times, but the initial seed happened when I was actually at the Park School of Communications in Ithaca, I think either my junior or senior year. I was racking my brain for a golden doorknob film idea. Um, the golden doorknob uh, is like a contest where you have to uh, make a horror film that, where someone dies by a doorknob. And I was thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it, and then I had this really creepy dream where I was in my house and there were these black threads everywhere, um, like under the carpet, behind the washing machine. And I was like, what is this thing? And I'm, I kind of follow the threads into the woods and I find this creepy hut. And in the hut, there's like this uh, kind of pile of like rags and like almost like rotting black yarn. And I know that there's something horrible under like, like that it is that pile and it's, you know, of that pile. It's like a witch or something, I remember. And so I was initially trying to make that happen in time as a golden doorknob film where like the, there's like a, you know, a door, like a portal in the woods that you kind of open up or something like that. Didn't end up making it in time, but kind of kept chewing on the idea for years. Uh, then I ended up reading a book called In Search of the Multiverse uh, post-college, which is all about multiverse theory and the idea of, you know, infinite realities and where things could be different or just slightly different. And I started to kind of wonder if maybe the black threads were kind of like this supernatural force that were linking you to parallel versions of yourself. And so the idea that like when you dream, maybe you're actually dreaming about another version of yourself. And so all your dreams are real. They're all actually happening. Um, so I kept, you know, try, I tried to make a short, I wrote a short story, I wrote, tried to write a feature film, um, and then um, Julianne and uh, myself and a bunch of our friends started playing um, a, a pen and paper game called uh, Call of Cthulhu, which is very much like D&D, &D, except spooky. And I started to write um, my story idea into this kind of overarching campaign where, you know, my friends were <laughs> playing it with me. And we spent years just having fun with me writing, you know, story after story after story. And I kind of looked back and realized that I'd functionally already written like a whole novel. <laughs> um, and that maybe uh, this, this might be something that uh, could be, you know, published. And so we started, so then I found an artist, Teresa, from the School of Visual Arts in New York City, and um, an editor, Lisa, <laughs> uh, also a park student, and began work on the comic in earnest. And that's been the last five years so far. But why Ithaca? 
a question that had been nagging at me since I first saw the title of the comic. I mean, superhero stories are usually based in New York City, which Michael and Julianne also have a connection to. But even outside of that, Lovecraftian horror comedies could truly exist anywhere in the world. So why Ithaca? We moved back to Ithaca <laughs> after years of spent in New York City. Um, yeah, I, I always really loved um, the work of, of Stephen King and how he always sets everything in Maine um, and draws upon real Maine history and what he's doing. Um, I, I found that it kind of it, it grounds the work when it's you know a real place that you know well and that you love, and so you can talk about you know the way the leaves change or how the hills suck or how everything is shale, you know, certain places or whatever. Um, it, it helps me flesh out the world. And, and also, like, I really missed the city of Ithaca after we were leaving. You know, we had so many uh, wonderful friends, uh, you know, and teachers that we knew here. And while life in New York City is great, you know, you still miss trees and water and clean air and whatnot. And so um, I definitely, uh, I, I don't think at any point, I think maybe the short story was set in the subways in New York City, but every other iteration of the story I always knew was going to be in Ithaca. Um, and, and then I uh, started uh, talking about, um, the film history, because I kind of love to incorporate some elements of real history into what I'm doing. And so that kind of, the main, one of the main characters, Mookie Smits, is a, is a down-in-his-luck filmmaker who's trying to work for the Wharton Studio, which is a, the real studio that existed here at the time. And so I reached out to Diana Reisman at the Wharton Studio Museum, just for reference photos, you know, see if they had pictures of any actors from the time, to see if they had um, any film of Ithaca in the 1920s, so I could uh, show to my artist, Teresa, you know, here's what it looked like in the 1920s, here's like Cornell or whatever, so she can have, you know, really accurate uh, reference images for the work. And um, Diana Reeson was just so excited to hear that someone was working on the Wharton Studio uh, side of things, or I guess uh, interested in the Wharton Studio side of things, that um, we became, uh, you know, really good friends. And uh, she sends me, you know, all these amazing photos and, and films, and then I send them to Teresa, and then some of them make their way into the comic, which is really fun too. Amazing. So are you uh, featuring in Ithacon? Like, how did you come to be tied up with Ithacon? Yes, it has been my dream to bring Ithaca comic to Ithacon for, I think, five years or so. Because <laughs> I think uh, when we had our first, we when I first heard of it, we weren't done with our first issue. And I, I guess I was still uh, intimidated by the idea of, you know, putting yourself out there and, um, you know, being like, I'm a, I'm a writer, not just a person who's pecking away at a side project. And so... I felt like I did. I wanted to wait to uh, go to Ithacon until I had a full finished product to show, um, and then that was around 2020, uh, a little earlier than tw probably 2019, um, when uh, the first issue was published. It was out. People liked it. We had already kickstarted it um, and raised you know money for it, and we're ramping up for a big book tour that's going to be in uh, Ithacon. It's going to be uh, at Buffalo Street Books. We were going to go to a few schools in the area in New York State. I'm going to do some stuff in Hoboken, where we live too, and get the Kickstarter ready. And then it's March of 2020 and COVID happened. And so <laughs> and so then there goes two years right there. Um, but I will say we did have fun. We ended up making a digital book tour where we hired actors to um, do on Zoom a, a recreation of the second issue. So that was really cool. Um, but anyway, so that added two years to our uh, you know wait time to get onto uh, Ithacon in person. To, to hear. Finally. But you were also on a panel uh, virtually on Zoom last year That's for true. the con. So at least we were able to sort of start getting involved mm -hmm. then. Yeah, true. People with a variety of different fandoms and interests could enjoy Michael's work due to the abundance of themes that all wrap together in the plot. Uh, we kind of we do bounce around with genre a lot, I will say. Um, but I guess if, if the 1920s aesthetic is really kind of interesting to you, 
if you like stories about um, kind of cooperation as opposed to a single hero, kind of like, you know, Marvel Universe style where it's like one person knows everything. Um, I kind of am going more for, I guess, a, a Lord of the Rings kind of thing where it's, you know, it's a fellowship of people who have to kind of work together and it's not like the, you know, the problem isn't solved because one person gets it right. It's because enough people are working together to, to hold the line kind of vibe. And, and it's funny along the way because I, I don't know, I always, even when I'm doing spooky, creepy stuff, I always kind of find a way to, to find some funny moments anyway. Do you have any future works in the making or, you know, like just what's your plan with comic books in the future? Do you see this becoming a full-time gig for you? It's going to take uh, time, but it'd be great uh, for sure. Um, this is going to be uh, initially a 13-issue run to kind of complete this story arc that we started. Um, and we've finished four issues. I've written all of them. Uh, if we, you know, if all of a sudden the funding comes in crazy on the Kickstarter or we find a publisher, we could probably put an issue out every three months or so. So we could be done fairly quickly. Um, and I've got a lot of stories in the universe planned so I could kind of stay here. But then I'm also thinking about another book that I've been kind of, I'm waiting until I finish Ithaca to get to it, but I kind of have this idea about kind of like, um, like a, a climate changey story <laughs> where, um, yeah, it's kind of hard to describe, but basically uh, kind of a, a more hopeful kind of solar punk kind of story where um, the environment is being crueler to us because of climate change, but society has changed in ways that mean that, you know, we're taking care of each other better too. And maybe kind of like a, a fantasy magical element to it as well. So, but that's in the distance right now. Ithaca is pretty much everything. <laughs> A lot of students in IC, Cornell, and beyond are aspiring creatives. So here's some advice for the students or young people looking to start careers in similar fields. The hardest part is committing to doing something. And so you can have a really terrible idea and you're not confident in it. But if you just start making something, just start doing it. It doesn't have to be for money. Like it's just your passion projects. Obviously, like money is a factor, but like something like writing is something you just, you, you gotta just do it. Um, and even, you know, these days you can shoot things on iPhones, you know, you can make things for very little, if not no money. Like we make silly music videos with our friends that are like never gonna see the light of day, but it's just stuff that we like to like make. So for me personally, it's just, you gotta, the hardest part is like ripping the bandaid off and just doing something. And so I think that's probably like the first step that I would recommend. Yeah, yeah to that point, um... In the early days, uh, just to kind of get myself into a habit, I would set a timer for, for 20 minutes, which is like nothing. <laughs> but you know, I'd be like, well, you're gonna write for at least 20 minutes. And then over the years, I've kind of moved up to like an hour and a half to three hour uh, sessions for writing. But just um, setting a timer um, and being like, I'm just gonna write for you know like 20, whatever m amount of time you can definitely sit down for, start there and then increase. I think that you probably, if you want my like, you know, I don't know, a crunch the numbers, you know, kind of a pr perspective. I think that like an hour and a half to three hours is really where you kind of start to find flow, no matter like, no matter what mood you're in. If you really do sit down with a timer and start working, you will hit a good point at some point in that hour and a half to three hours, no matter how miserable it is. Um, I think especially uh, if you are uh, visually creative, even if you don't feel like your work is worthy, um, you should start, uh, you know, whatever you have to do to trick yourself into thinking that you're, you know, you're worthy if you don't believe it, <laughs> just start because you are. And uh, just getting something started really is, uh, is key. Um, and building that kind of, that base of people who will support you. Uh, I remember I read something a long time ago that you basically only need like 100 
super committed fans uh, to succeed as a uh, as a creative person. And so, you know, getting to the point where you can have 100 people who will buy your your you know the the special edition of your book the day when it comes out is kind of when you can catch that wave and no longer need <laughs> you know uh, a job or what have you. Um, so get started on the Patreon side or whatever you know whatever. I don't know, crowdfunding or, you know, group, you know, pay for the art <laughs> website or platform that you've heard of. I really enjoyed talking to you guys. And if there's anything else you would like to add, feel free. Yeah. Yeah, I think I would just boost the Kickstarter. It launched yesterday for issues four and five. Issue four, the art and lettering is fully done. So we just need the costs for printing. And then issue five, we need the costs for the art and then the printing. Mm -hmm. If you subscribe on the website, we'll send you the first two issues to read, just because at this point, we just really want to have more people reading the comic more than anything else. Um, if you're so inclined, we have a lot of fun things we're giving out on Kickstarter, including um, you can be drawn into the comic itself, which Ooh. is really fun. Uh, we've had that uh, reward backed a few times. But then also, we have a raffle where if you uh, if you get your you know number drawn, uh, Teresa will draw you as either a cultist or an investigator, your choice, um, in the love, you know, Ithaca Lovecraftian world which is super fun and art posters and we're kind of putting out funny videos uh, often <laughs> this week so yeah please check out the kickstarter and uh, please subscribe on the website so you can get some comments in your hands for wicb news i'm himadri said with environmental activists continuing to push to regulate mining in new york state Correspondent Caroline Grass takes a deep dive into Bitcoin mining and how it affects the state. Cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and Bitcoin mining may not be terms many people know well or understand. But for New York State, the topic has environmental activists pushing for the state to regulate mining operations or enact a two-year moratorium on the creation of new mining. But the Department of Environmental Conservation, or DEC, and the New York State government continue to delay reaching a temporary or permanent solution to this problem. Created in 2008, Bitcoin is a virtual currency that allows people to send money without a bank as an intermediary or regulator. The price of Bitcoin fluctuates, and today one Bitcoin is worth roughly $40,000. Bitcoin mining is the process where new Bitcoins are created. People who validate the transactions are monetarily rewarded, which incentivizes the verification process. Specialized computers race to solve complex math problems, and the fastest one to complete the calculation for the correct answer can record the transaction in a new block of the chain. This method is called proof of work, and it requires immense energy outputs. Environmental groups and citizens are worried that the air pollution from Bitcoin mining will derail New York State's goal for the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, or CLCPA, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 40% by 2030 and at least 85% by 2050 from 1990 levels. Dr. Robert Howarth of Cornell University is a systems scientist who is an expert on climate change and greenhouse gas emissions from natural fuel. He is a member of the Climate Action Council, which is a 22-member group that is creating the plan to achieve the clean energy and climate agenda the CLCPA maps out. Howarth said the goals are ambitious but crucial to keeping the planet from warming. We have to cut greenhouse gas emissions statewide from all economic sectors by 40%. And that's you know, that's, that's a, a challenge, but it's also exactly what's needed if we're going to reach the uh, United Nations COP21 and COP26 goals. 
Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change came out with the most recent synthesis report just last month, and they they really they said we only have this decade to get our act together, and <laughs> we need to be globally cutting emissions by 40 to 45 percent. So the the CLCPA target looks ambitious compared to what anyone's done in the past, but it's also what needs to be done. At a public hearing on cryptocurrency mining held October 27, 2021, by the New York State Assembly, Howarth and two other Cornell University professors spoke about the dangers of cryptocurrency mining. One plant in Dresden, New York, operated by Greenwich Generation, is wrecking environmental havoc in the community. Dr. Anthony Graffia, professor of civil and environmental engineering, said Greenwich's plant is using technology from the 1900s, which is only about 30% efficient. And Graffia expanded on this during his testimony at the hearing. 30% of the energy contained in the natural gas is converted into electricity. What that means is that when the plant operates at full capacity, which cryptocurrency plants should in order to optimize their profits, if you divide the total number of megawatt hours that the plant would be in operation into the total emissions taken into account both carbon dioxide and methane, you get a specific emission rate of about one metric ton per megawatt hour. That is the least possible efficient way to generate electricity using natural gas. And it's therefore the climate dirtiest way to perform cryptocurrency operations. Yvonne Taylor, vice president of Seneca Lake Guardian, a not-for-profit corporation dedicated to protecting the health of the Finger Lakes, said the group is trying to push for Greenwich's Title V air permits, which are under review from the DEC, to be denied. We realize that not only would this facility on uh, Seneca Lake impact our clean air, our clean water, our thriving economic engine, which is agriculture and tourism, rely heavily on but it also would you know, negatively impact New York State's climate goals. And the, the Greenwich facility is a precedent-setting case uh, because there are many underutilized or decommissioned power plants throughout New York State that could follow the Greenwich model. So um, it's not just a local issue. It's not just a regional issue. It's a statewide, national, and global issue. Greenwich Generation started its commercial Bitcoin mining operation in the spring of 2020. The plant was previously a coal-powered plant, but now runs with natural gas and computers working 24-7, 365 days a year to mine Bitcoin. Greenwich has approximately 19,400 miners, which are specialized computers that solve the computational problems to win Bitcoin. Greenwich's 2021 year review tallied a total revenue of $107.3 million, which is a 433% year-over-year increase. First quarter 2022 revenue was $38 million, which, if continued at that rate for the rest of the year, would be approximately $152 million of revenue for this year. Greenwich's air permit expired in September 2021, but they applied with the DEC to extend their permit. The DEC was supposed to make a decision by December, but postponed until March 1st, 2022. The DEC delayed their decision again until June 30th, which is two days after the primary election in New York, which includes the governor's spot. Environmental activists were upset with the second delay, and Taylor said she believes this is a political move from Governor Kathy Hochul, as she says Hochul has a close connection with DEC Commissioner Basil Sagos. DEC Commissioner Basil Sagos doesn't put his pant legs on in the morning without the direction of Governor Hochul. So she is in charge of that uh, 100%. She has directed her DEC to delay this decision, and we feel that it is 100% political 
because, you know, the, she's extended the decision uh, again and again, ironically, until this time, two days after the primary election. We feel strongly that it's at this point sheer political theater. The pro-crypto industry is spending $1.5 million on lobbying in New York State to convince Governor Hochul to go soft on this industry. And we feel that it's entirely shameful choosing to, to favor a predatory corporation who's exploiting our natural resources instead of standing by everyday New Yorkers and supporting her constituents. Howarth agreed and said he thinks Greenwich should not have their air permits renewed because the emissions of the plant puts the state in the wrong direction of the goals of the CLCPA. They were supposed to make a decision then, but they postponed it again. Uh, you know, odd thing to do. They should, they really should just make a decision and they should make the right decision. <laughs> there are five former coal-fired plants in New York that are unused and Ingrafia asserted that if all of them became Bitcoin mining operations, 18 million metric tons of CO2 emissions would be produced, which would account for over 8% of the state's target to reduce emissions by 2030. Of course, if it's just Greenwich, it's one plant, whatever, I suppose you can live with it. But if Greenwich gets away with it, then there are probably a dozen, maybe up to 18 other other such you know, old, underused or abandoned uh, power plants that could similarly be retrofitted. And, and then you're talking, you know, you're talking real gas. Taylor said a single facility running at full capacity can produce over a million tons of CO2 equivalents in the atmosphere every year. This is equivalent to about 100,000 homes, or the entirety of the emissions from Tompkins County. The Greenwich plant also draws 139 million gallons of water a day through an intake pipe that is over two football fields long and seven feet in diameter from Seventh Lake. They discharge the warm water back into the lake at temperatures up to 108 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer and 86 degrees in the winter. Taylor said that this is damaging to wildlife in the lake, especially the trout population, which becomes stressed at temperatures above 70 degrees. Taylor described other environmental impacts that have been seen in Dresden and Seneca Lake. The, the, the immediate surrounding area will say that noise is one of the most harmful impacts. What used to be a peaceful, quiet area where you could hear the birds chirping and the water lapping up against the shoreline is now you know, overrun with what sounds like a low-level jet engine 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're concerned about our aquatic life. We're also concerned that warm water is a contributing factor to harmful algal blooms, which is a toxin to both humans and animals. And Seneca Lake is a drinking water resource for over 100,000 people. So there's that. And then also, you know, the, the obviously the greenhouse gas emission, major concern for we are not immune to climate change. We're already experiencing 100-year storms virtually every three years due to climate change. So this facility, uh, you know, by an out-of-state private corporation is preying upon our natural resources for their private financial gain. At the local level, communities are struggling to wrap their heads around Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining and are trying to protect their towns from the practice. In Lansing, the Cayuga Power Plant, which was a coal power plant that decommissioned in 2019 and had soft plants to become a data center, now could become a Bitcoin mining operation. There are no formal proposals yet, but the town board has tried to figure out how they could prohibit or regulate mining in their community. 
Lansing Town Board Council person Joseph Wetmore said the town talked about trying to see how they could ban the practice through zoning or create their own moratorium, but he talked about the struggles the town faces. At the Codes Committee, we, we looked at various try attempts at language and really found ourselves up against the issue that zoning code doesn't really fit regulating something like Bitcoin mining. This is more of a state or a federal regulated issue. Since Bitcoin mining is run by computers, very few jobs are created with the expansion of the plants. Wetmore said he is most worried about the environmental damage Bitcoin mining has. If it's very little job creation, my concerns are really around the environmental impacts. It's a tremendous amount of energy to create data on a spreadsheet, essentially. I think we could be using our energy in our community in a very different way. Taylor talked about how regulating Bitcoin mining needs to be done at the state or federal level. In the case of Lansing, they are not finding a way to zone out potential Bitcoin mining facility there just based on the nature of the facility. It's privately owned. It would be tapping into the grid. They wouldn't necessarily need permits from the Department of Environmental Conservation. You know, between a rock and a hard place and trying to prevent this community from being impacted by such a thing, which is exactly why we feel that this should not be a town-by-town fight this should be this should be regulated as a state and there should be federal regulation against this industry. Wetmore said the town of Lansing hasn't made an official statement on Bitcoin mining yet. The fate of the Cayuga power plant and many others in New York State remain uncertain as the state waits for guidance from Governor Hochul and the DEC. I think we're going to be dealing with and land around it for many years in terms of transitioning it from coal power plant into something else. There's all kinds of Issues can be looked at, you know, not only the power plant itself, but the railroad tracks that lead to it and the uh, ash pile that's next to it and the forest and shoreline next to it. I mean, there's all kinds of separate things that will probably be dealt with at different times in different ways. Bitcoin mining has gained traction and with it, the environmental consequences of the process have dramatically increased. Taylor said the Seneca Lake Guardian will continue to fight for regulation at the state level and then the federal level to protect communities across the country. So this is a very little understood, uh, relatively new industry, which is coming under the radar into many communities across the United States. We've made connections with uh, people in West Virginia, Georgia, Texas, South Carolina, Missoula, Montana, Pennsylvania, and of course, New York, just to try and, you know, offer support, educate and inform folks about what's coming, listen to their concerns, and try and collaborate on a federal level. Because if we are successful in getting a moratorium in New York State, we know that these miners can simply unplug their machines and move somewhere else where there's no regulation. So that doesn't really solve the problem, right? So what we need is we need federal regulations. And the way to do that is to communicate and connect and collaborate with communities across the country who are impacted by this and try to make a stand. Here we are in the middle of a a global climate crisis, and we're burning more fossil fuels and emitting more greenhouse gases to make virtual currency. We're, we're trying to scream at the top of our lungs, stop, this is insane, and we're, we're trying to get people to listen. 
For WICB News, I'm Caroline Grass. Correspondence, Correspondents Christian Maitri and Michael Memis returned this week with the second episode of their series looking into the history of student media at Ithaca College. In this week's episode, the two look at the history of Ithaca College's second radio station, VIC. Hello and welcome to the second episode of our multi-part series on the history of student media at Ithaca College. For WICB, I'm Christian Maitri. And I'm Michael Memes. This week, we're focusing on BIC Radio, briefly known as WVIC in 1984 after a change from WICB AM. BIC Radio has gone through many changes throughout the years to get where it is today as Ithaca College's internet radio. Last week, if you listened to our episode on WICB, you heard from Toll Tompkins, who attended Ithaca College from 1969 to 1972. Here he is again, giving us some insight into what VIC Radio was like during his time at College Radio. Right. And that, you know, there was no internet back then, obviously. And WICB AM was on what was known as carrier current. So the signal was actually piped through the electrical lines that were in the dormitories and other buildings uh, on campus. During his time at the school, VIC was actually called WICB AM. So if you had an AM radio, back when we had AM radios, uh, you could turn on that AM radio and get WICB AM. And occasionally, depending on how close you were in a car to a building, you could also pick it up in a car. But once you drove off campus, it was gone because it wasn't really a broadcast signal. It was called carrier current and it went through the the currents and the electrical wires that were in the buildings. So that gave um, students a chance to uh, kind of participate in a different format from what FM was doing. Yeah, I'm Chris Wheatley and um... I was manager of radio operations from, let's see, 1985 to 2013, and then I became manager of television and radio operations 2013 until 2017 when I took my retirement. The 80s represented a period of change for the station, and Wheatley got to see this change firsthand. Did you guys have the 50-hour marathon? Yeah, in fact, that... I think yeah that was probably like 85 86 it started out it was i think it was like a bowling tournament that was really more fun for the staff than anything but and i forget how we raised money but then anyway it became one of those um one of those annual things that um got a whole lot of people involved and you know we talked it up for students as, um, you know, hey, help us raise money and you can say on your resume that you have sales experience. This year is VIC's 35th 50-hour marathon. One thing Wheatley sought to expand was VIC's listenership. We tried to get radiating FM cable installed in all the residence halls so that cable that was in the ceiling would give just enough signal that you could tune your your FM radio to 105.9 and pick up this really cool station. VIC radio went through multiple name changes in the 80s. Here's Wheatley with a story on that. I got a check in the mail and it it was to like general sales manager WVIC Lansing, Michigan, but somehow it ended up um, in my mailbox at the college. So I opened this 
this envelope and it's a check for $12,000. So I call up, I guess, the GM or the general sales manager in Lansing, Michigan, and told them what happened. And they said, well, isn't that interesting? Because we have uh, our attorney with us right now. And um, uh, I think he'd be very interested to hear that you're using our call letters. <laughs> and so um, that's sort of how that went. I said, well, I guess we're going to drop the W then. <laughs> they said, I think that's a good idea before um, you know, we send a cease and desist and all that. So dodged a bullet. Yeah, that was, um, geez, that must have been like 86 or 87. So when I got to be to Ithaca in the fall of 80, 84, excuse me, VIC was top 40. That's Kevin Goins, who in the late 80s served as one of the program directors for VIC and later its production manager. Here he is talking about a format change he witnessed for VIC radio. So we flipped the format to album-oriented rock, and that's when we became the rock of Ithaca. So... We did all the, what was popular in the album rock charts, which of course were, I guess, some couple member, couple of people I mentioned before, Bruce Springsteen, he was in the news. But then you had uh, John Parr, who had the hit record with St. Elmo's Fire. You had a whole bunch of folks who were putting out records that were in the AOR category. Pat Benchar was, was one of them, as I mentioned earlier. And Tom Chartrand and Bobby Carlton, who was the, or Roberta Carlton, who was the station manager. They incorporated a format that I called the crossroads, which is basically you had one road of folks who liked a lot of the of the newer rock and roll music. Right. But then you had a road of folks who loved the classic stuff of the roots of rock or the or we really emphasized classic rock because classic rock was starting to emerge as a very powerful sub format and then in 1997 we became one of the first uh colleges to have an internet only radio station that was chris mascarelli vic's current station manager we believe vic switched to a indie alternative format in either the late 90s or early 2000s based on our conversations with multiple sources i want to end this piece with a statement from goins about college radio at ic that carries on to today we had some serious fun. You know, we did we did a lot. We did things for the community. We did fundraisers. We did bowl-a-thons. We did dance-a-thons. Um, you know, we, we weren't just a bunch of kids who just sat there with a stack of records, you know. We wanted to really do something that would make, that would help benefit the community. For WICB News, I'm Christian Maitre. And I'm Michael Memes. Former news director Jay Bradley, who did a story talking about EVs at Cornell, got a chance to visit the electric vehicles for Earth Day event at Cass Park this week, where he talked to the organizers and attendees. With their environmental benefits and increased gas prices, electric cars are getting more and more popular. Newer companies like Tesla and legacy automobile companies are growing the availability of electric vehicles and making charging more and more accessible. And while not yet the dominant force in car buying, Americans are really looking at the potential of electric vehicles. Cars.com, a website that compiles car listings online, reported that EV searches are up by 173% over the month of March, likely due to heightened gas prices. I've noticed a lot of electric cars driving around in recent years, and the Tompkins County Cornell Cooperative Extension wants to grow that even more. 
Their electric vehicles for Earth Day event gathered many people at Cass Park on Saturday to view and speak to the owners of over a dozen different EV and plug-in hybrid vehicles on display with additional so showcases showcases by TCAT, Ithaca CarShare, BikeShare Tompkins, and more with an emphasis on affordability. It's a really beautiful event because we've got people showing up who are owners who will speak from the heart about what it's been like to own an electric vehicle. And then um, also people who are just curious, people who want to see how fast they can accelerate, you know, people who can know about all the cool stuff about electric vehicles. Holly Payne, environment educator for the Cooperative Extension, was an organizer for the event and has worked hard with her organization in researching and leading education initiatives about electric vehicles like this one. We're at a really important moment in history um, where people have a choice about whether they're going to step into the new technology if they can afford it or whether they're going to continue burning fossil fuels, which harms the, the global climate. And so there's a huge push to try to get people into electric vehicles. Barry Adams, a retired professor of English at Cornell, is a proud owner of the Chevrolet Bolt. His car was one of those on display at the Cass Park event, where he answered questions about his experience with it. He had previously driven standard Subarus, but wanted to switch for the sake of their environmental impact, and he says he really enjoys the new car. However, with a new type of engine comes different worries. The main concern is partly psychological, range anxiety. I guess you've heard this before, too. Uh, worried about whether you'll get stuck between charging stations. I've never had that happen to me, but that's because I go short distances as a rule. I charge it at home, plug it into my household electrical outlet, and it's rated when new at 230 miles, which is pretty generous. Uh, but yeah, 200 miles or so is good enough for my purposes. I come back and forth from Brooktondale to Ithaca, basically, so that works out nicely. He and others who point to this worry say that to alleviate this, being able to see more fast public charging stations established throughout the country would make a really big difference. Whether it'll happen in one or two generations, I don't know. It takes time, obviously. But I think that will produce a kind of psychological adjustment. Uh, the range anxiety is, you know, a real thing. Even though it's mental, it's real. But another challenge, too, is making sure that electric vehicles are accessible to people of low to middle income. There's a perception of electric cars, especially in brands like Tesla, that they can be unaffordable for a lot of people. A new Tesla Model 3, for example, marketed as the affordable car of the company's lineup, goes for almost $47,000. This isn't the full picture, though, with many of the cars at the event being more affordable models by traditional automakers, with many new electric car models having an MSRP in the 20s and 30s, thousands of dollars range. Plus, New York State offers a drive clean rebate of up to $2,000 for new purchases of electric cars, in addition to federal tax credits for a switch, meaning that there's a lot of encouragement not just from people like Holly Payne, but also from the government to get more people over to EVs. The question is, well, can you afford it? And so we're looking very hard at ownership, leasing, um, we're looking at secondhand electric vehicles. We know the price will come down because so many more models are going out right now and they will soon be secondhand models. We know that second-hand cars have a really good history of behaving properly. Payne also argued for the maintenance cost benefits of electric cars and the fueling benefits. So once you own an electric vehicle, on average, this is, this is actually on average before the price of gas spiked, you will be saving 60% in fueling. So that's amazing. And you'll be saving 50% in maintenance. 
So that's the point at which you say, wow, you know, not only will we not be um, burning fossil fuels, which harms the climate and the globe itself, but we will also be saving money. The tipping point is really whether you can afford that car. But it's not just upgrading personal vehicles that will reduce emissions. It's also about improving the infrastructure so personal vehicles don't have to be used as much as they are altogether. That's why Ithaca Car Share, Bike Walk Tompkins, an initiative pushing for bike sharing's return under a public-owned umbrella, and TCAT were present. So our community is very much dedicated to mobility, to electric vehicles, and to helping residents, community members get around our community, get to work without having to drive a personal vehicle. That's Laura Lewis, acting mayor of the city of Ithaca and also the chair of the TCAP board of directors, who was at the event discussing the new buses and how it fits into other initiatives happening in the area. I think it has real benefits as we all increasingly talk about for very good reason as we all talk about uh, Green New Deal, emissions, wanting to cut down on emissions from vehicles, as well as cutting down on uh, emissions from, from buildings. And that's where we talk about the electrification of buildings. So there's a lot going on all at once, which is very exciting. Right now, seven of TCAT's buses are electric with more on the way. And the organization has a goal to make its entire fleet battery electric by 2035, as resources become available through grants and other funds. And as we talk about not just TCAT, but as we talk about electric vehicles as a whole, there is a real need for additional electric vehicle charging stations throughout the city. So as a city, here I'm putting on my acting mayor hat. We are also concerned with any development going forward in the city. We want to make sure that we're including electric vehicle chargers in, uh, future, in future development. But overall, the events serve to give people a close-up look at what a future car of theirs might be, and how decisions of what you can drive and how often you drive can come into play as people locally and all over the world try to make their impact more green. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most important things is to come and pop the hood, sit in the seats, ask questions to electric vehicle owners, um, look underneath it and understand, oh, this one has no exhaust pipe. I'm never going to have to replace the muffler or the exhaust system ever again. We're here today to celebrate the environment. Yesterday was Earth Day. Uh, and we should be celebrating Earth Day every day and making sure that uh, people can live a safe, healthy, and happy uh, life well into the future. What we have to be reminded of is that we're taking actions right now that benefit currently our residents. But these benefits have long, long lasting positive impacts on generations to come in the future. For WICB News, I'm Jay Bradley. That's all for tonight's edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past shows, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear this show anywhere, anytime. Also subscribe to The Latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from the manager of television and radio operations, Jeremy Menard, WICB station manager, Connor.